welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Doing things slightly different and I'm working with someone I haven't worked with in a long time. I'm working with the fabulous Charlie. Charlie, how are you doing? I'm very good, Chris, my boaty friend. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good <laughs> to see you. We're not touching on boats. Well, briefly touching on a boat today, but not many. So who have we got on today and uh, what are we talking about? Well, we're very lucky today to have a repeat offender joining us here on History Hack. We've got the wonderful Michelle Schindler. She's a medieval historian who specialises in the later medieval period. And we've already had her on to talk about her first book, Lovell, Our Dog, um, who is basically just Richard III's ride or die best friend, Francis Lovell. But she's here today to talk to us all about her second book, De La Pole, Father and Son, The Duke, The Heir and the Struggle for Power. Hi, Michelle, how are you? Hello, thank you for having me again. I hope you're all fine. Oh, we're really good. We're so excited to have you back, Michelle. You know that you are in very safe company here. A lot of Yorkists in the room. That's good. <laughs> they don't so, want to argue. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're, we're very much team White Rose here. Um, but let's let's get into the Dillapoles. At the time of John Dillapole's birth, what was his family position in the nobility? What are they up to at this time? Well, they were very much to the fore at court at that time when, when John de la Pole was born. And John's father, especially William de la Pole, was uh, favoured a lot by King Henry VI. It's often been said that he was some sort of a father figure for the king. Mm -hmm. And at the time of John's birth, though, the first cracks were starting to appear. There were voices that William was being too powerful, that Alice especially also was being too powerful. That's uh, John's mother mm -hmm. uh, taking on a position that's not suited to a woman and uh, that, that they both were leading the king and not in directions that were best for England, but that were best for them. And, um, well, it, it was... Not yet dangerous for them, but it was starting to go there at the time of John's birth. As you said, it, it does start to degrade quite nastily. And um, what what does happen to William Delapole? Well, simply put, he became too powerful. Plus, Henry the uh, Sixth reign was starting to become more difficult, going in a direction that really wasn't uh, all that. That good. The situation for England in, in Europe became worse, especially during the, the last phase of the Hundred Years' War. And William especially was seen as a figurehead for that for two reasons. Uh, first of all, he was sort of the, the main the main courtier at Henry VI's court. So it was always great to blame him rather than the king for it. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, William especially was seen as openly favoring peace in France. And, and he did. This is uh, not disputed. From a modern point of view, he he was completely right. He himself had fought in France for well over a decade. He'd been imprisoned, he'd been injured, he'd lost his father and all his four brothers in France, two in battle, two in captivity. So it makes perfect sense he wanted peace. And uh, as an experienced fighter, he probably also saw the writing on the wall. 
so that it wasn't going to become better for, for England, that, that it was time to cut their losses. But it wasn't a, a popular opinion. And uh, due to this being known, due to him saying this again and again, uh, and due to him being close to Henry VI, uh, all, all of the king's unpopular positions became being blamed on William. Also, the unpopular marriage to Margaret of Anjou, which meant losses for, for England and France, most notably Anjou, um, was also blamed on him because he had been the, the man who had negotiated um, this marriage. Of course, he, he couldn't have done this without the complete support of Henry VI himself. He, he couldn't have said, oh, well, I'm just giving up these parts of lands without royal support, but, uh, well, he was being blamed. Moreover, Henry favored William extremely, and even in 1448, he made him a duke and a position that had been previously reserved for royalty, brothers, uncles, nephews of the king. So a lot of um, nobility, a uh, more old established nobility, um, would have uh, been upset about this. And even more so because William, though he was an earl, uh, had inherited the title, um, was actually of singularly low birth for the nobility of the time, his, his family being descended from wool merchants. So naturally, this caused even more anger in the people who figured they should, uh, they were more deserving of this, uh, this sort of title and this sort of favor. And eventually, the anger uh, against Henry and especially his court became so bad that um, men close to him and William were actually murdered on the street, Adam Molins uh, being being one such man. And so something had to be done. And the mob was screaming for William's blood. So he was eventually, he was imprisoned and accused of uh, treason. He was accused of absolutely everything his enemies could think of, uh, from trying to make the French king, king of England, to having seduced a nun. Oh, Completely irrelevant stuff t uh, in parts, but mud sticks. And Henry VI could eventually see to it that the treason charges did not stick, but he couldn't save William completely. So he was declared guilty of lesser charges and sentenced to five years in exile. And this was a move almost certainly meant to protect William more than anything else. And William duly made to relieve England, but he never left the country. Uh, his ship was intercepted. He was subjected to a mock trial and then beheaded with a rusty sword. There's a lot of detail about this in the Paston letters. And he was threatened with his men being hurt if he tried to defend himself. So he just let it happen. After his death, his body was then stripped of all valuables, and, and after that, it was dumped at a beach. And this is often claimed to have been done by an angry mob, and the angry mob was certainly screaming for his blood, but it has to be pointed out that the ship which intercepted William's ship was a royal one, so it would have to uh, have been commanded by someone in power. We don't know who exactly, but Richard Duke of York is the most popular candidate, the one who's most often blamed. Ah, well, we we like to blame the the Richards of York for a lot of things that go wrong yeah. this time. Um, this is, I mean, my goodness, what what a roller coaster ride! It reminds me, hearing this, you know, looking a little bit later, that idea of someone getting above their station, getting too close to the king, and then being blamed for everything that's going wrong. This feels like Thomas Cromwell in the 16th century. This feels like um, Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Stratford in the in the 17th century, uh, Charles I's advisor. This this does feel like a bit of a a bit of a theme. So it, poor old William. Yeah, it's a thing. Uh, Thomas Becket in the 12th century as well, yeah. even before he became Archbishop. It's it's a thing that happened. Yeah, it's, it's just a thing. Uh, <laughs> so how did 
William's death affect John de la Pole and the rest of the family? I really want to hear about Alice. She sounds amazing. Alice is great. Yeah, at first it was a disaster. Uh, Alice was really uncommonly powerful, uh, even for, uh, for, for any man, but especially for a woman. She was known to have a big influence on Henry VI, have supported her husband completely, and she as well was being, uh, well, fairly low-born, her being the granddaughter of Geoffrey Chaucer, the poet, uh, who was a winter's son himself, so yeah. Um, so again, we have this idea of a woman um, rising above her station and then a commoner rising above her station. So, uh, well, people weren't happy. Uh, so yeah, she. Uh, so Alice was seen as being complicit in in, uh, in William Suppose's crimes, and she was hated as well. Shortly after William's death, the so-called Jacquette Rebellion began, and the, rebe uh, the rebels demanded one of their key rem uh, demands was that uh, several people be no longer allowed access to the king to not influence him. Uh, and uh, that some of these people be tried for treason. Alice was among them, and she was the only woman who was. Um, was on that list. It was therefore a, a pretty fraught summer for William's family. There were also threats against William's body even. And it seems as if Alice had her son, that's John Delapole, brought to court after learning of William's death. And Henry VI was probably, although we don't know for certain, John's godfather, so it was the safest place he could be. John himself was only seven years old, and it may have occurred to some people to harm him as some sort of twisted payback to his parents, but nobody would have been so eager to hurt an innocent kid to try and attack the royal residences for it. So, so John was sort of out of the picture. Mm -hmm. um, while Alice, Alice saw to it that her husband was buried properly and um, then, well, uh, tried and saved herself. And she, she succeeded. It all ended well for her. She was not accused of treason and she was not barred from accessing the king either. But, um, oh, there he is again. <laughs> But while she uh, occasionally uh, came to court after her husband's death, uh, most of her and John's time after after his death was spent in their own belongings. Maybe she was trying to distance herself and try and be there for her son and not have him associated with that scandal. Just absolutely um, just fascinating amount of stuff going on. I mean, talk about being cursed to live in interesting times. So when John does come of age, he's... The, the whole country is now in civil war, brutal civil war between the houses of Lancaster and York. So, um, did John de la Pole pick a side? How, how did he pick a side? How, how does anybody? Well, he did pick a side, but he did it comparatively late. And as early as February 1458, his mother, Alice again, and Richard, Duke of York, had decided that uh, John and Richard's second oldest daughter, Elizabeth, were to marry. And they married um, almost certainly in, in that February after the contracts were signed. Uh, they appear to have had a pretty good marriage. Uh, but uh, when it started, they were uh, 15 and 13 years old, respectively. So they just continued living with Alice for a while and probably were influenced by her. But despite these family ties uh, due to marriage, uh, John kept out of battles and picking sides for a while. Uh, by late 1460, there was uh, murmuring he should already pick a side and declare himself, but he didn't do so until uh, Richard, Duke of York, was dead. He first fought at the First Battle of St. Albans, uh, which might be the first battle he could muster enough men for after, after Richard's death. 
But uh, there's a there's a note of interest here. Uh, he did not fight at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross on second February fourteen sixty one, the first battle of of that of that year. It may have simply been because he did not have enough men yet, because it was only a month after Richard's death. But it's notable that at the end of October or early November fourteen sixty eight, John's first child, his daughter Elizabeth, was born. So we know exactly what he was doing instead of fighting <laughs> in early February fourteen sixty one. Uh, anyway, um, we don't actually know why he chose sides so late, but it may have been that he himself blamed Richard Duke of York for, for his father's death and didn't want to fight for him. Or maybe he just thought it was um, when Richard died, his son Edmund also died. And uh, that seems to have been a point when a lot of people were turned against the Lancastrians and maybe so did John. We just, we just can't know. Uh, from that time on, he always fought until the Yorkists, until he was critically injured at the Battle of Hexham in 1464, after which he never fought again. So, so much to take in there, isn't there? I mean, it's it's interesting that, that he seems to be a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> yeah. He didn't seem to have been a, um, a fighter, really. He did when he had to, but not his thing. So while he was um, doing his loving, how, did, <laughs> how was his um, family life like? It seems to have been unusually close. Uh, he and his wife Elizabeth had like 70 children, uh, 13 actually. Their first child was born when she was 17 and he was 19, and their last when she was 40 and he was 42. And their children were close to him and to adulthood. The oldest and most famous son, that's John Earl of Lincoln, never had his own household, continuing to live with his parents into adulthood. Uh, so did his older sister Elizabeth and her husband Henry Lord Morley. John was a good father. He was a good father figure too for some of the wards they had. And their household was one of education, and it seems it, it seems to have been quite happy. Um, Elizabeth was known to to be able to influence him, maybe the only person who could. So uh, so it seems they had a, a happy life. I mean, I guess it was happy until he fell out with a rather powerful East Anglian family over land holdings. I understand, and this this goes on. For years and years, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, he had pretty much inherited this quarrel already. His father, William, and John Paston, the the oldest, uh, there are three John Pastons in this, uh, <laughs> they had already had huge arguments, and John would continue them. They kept arguing about several manners, uh, valuable manners, but not really so val valuable you would think they would be worth a family feud spanning decades, but <laughs> apparently it was. Where were and, they in East Anglia, these, these manners? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> when I wrote this book, we were in lockdown, so I couldn't go visit it. I only Somewhere asked, in, I'm, from, I'm from the area, so I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, where Some of them were in Oxfordshire, I know. Um, but uh, some of them were in Suffolk, but where exactly, I, I really don't know. Uh, Halston, Halston was one of them. Uh, I don't know where this is. Clayton <laughs> was another one. Um, we'll get you. We'll get you over, and we'll go on the tour. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, John and the Paston family blamed each other for absolutely every minor thing that went wrong. One of them had had been told a sheep was missing. The other one must have stolen it. Uh, it was mostly minor stuff like that, though there were some bigger attacks on the manors. And in one notable instance, uh, John's men sacked the church. And this caused Paxton to gleefully comment that uh, words to the effect of this clown can't even control his own men. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the quarrel is usually told from the point of view of the Pastons because we have it in their letters and we don't have John's take on the whole situation. 
But even in the letters, it becomes clear that uh, there's a lot of people sided with either side. So it, it wasn't that clear cut. Mm, nor was such quarrels particularly uncommon, but it's notable about that this that it's very hard not to get the impression both John and all the pastons involved and all called John just just because <laughs> that they actually had a lot of fun with this. Uh, in one recorded instance, uh, John Duke of Suffolk arrived at one of the disputed manors, that's Halston, uh, which was held by John Paston at the time, and ate careful, he ate almost all the fish stored there, so just so John Paston wouldn't have any left when he came to visit. <laughs> oh my god. Just, just so he couldn't have any, he ate yes. all the fish. Yeah. Both, both John Paston Sr. and John Paston Jr., uh, or the middle Paston, uh, mentioned John in their worlds too. It's, it's quite fascinating. <laughs> it's hilarious. Oh, I mean, my goodness. We've all had neighbours like that, though, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, he also has other troubles because, as the rebel king's brother in law, things uh, that things must have been quite tense when Henry the Sixth came back on the throne. Um, and did he go out go into exile with Ed, with uh, Edward the Fourth? No, no, he didn't. He apparently managed to keep his head down. It, it was his wife, Elizabeth, who was, of course, the sister of the, the rebel king and uh, Richard, then Duke of Cluster. Um, and she was in contact with her brothers in exile and supposedly helped convince their brother, George, uh, Duke of Clarence, to change side and support Edward's bid to take back the throne. It's usually it's known that Margaret did, that's the Duchess of Burgundy, and but the other sisters, that's Anne, Duchess of Exeter, and uh, well Elizabeth, they were all in, in in contact with their brothers. And she and John stayed in in Suffolk at that time. And almost certainly, since they were close to the sea, it was her who led on the messages uh, th uh, to Burgundy and back from Burgundy. John is never mentioned in this context, but it's quite hard not to see how he could not have known what went on in his household, but. Mm -hmm. Since he didn't get involved, he probably had plausible deniability should Elizabeth be discovered. But we, we don't really know what he did there. We just we just know it went on in his household. I guess there's so so much back and forth, especially when you've seen you've seen um the the re I can't I can't remember what, what the name of it is. The, when when Henry the Sixth comes back, there's a name for it. Reaction. Um, that's it, readaption. So I'm thinking restoration, which is something completely different, much later. Different, yeah. um, so, so they've already seen, you know, a rebel king come in, depose a king, and then that deposed king come back and depose a rebel king. I can understand why people don't want to show their hand at this time because you don't know which which is going to be the winning side. You don't know what what's going to happen to you. So keeping your head down is a pretty smart move at this time. Yeah, especially if you maybe don't particularly care. It just, <laughs> if it's one king, if it's the other king, who cares? Especially since Edward wasn't particularly nice to him, maybe he wasn't. What do I care? <laughs> but John Duke of Suffolk goes on to serve the Yorkist cause, doesn't he? How successful is he at this? He he was not a very important man, but I think from his point of view, he was quite successful. He was a, a local magnate. He could cheerfully quarrel with the patients all he wanted. And whenever it was needed, he was there to serve king, serve king and country. Though, as mentioned before, he could not fight again after 4064. 
Um, Edward did not treat him very well, but, well, I guess being a somewhat uh, disliked brother-in-law of the king is still a position many, many men would have died for. Mm. And I think John was happy enough with what he had. He had a somewhat more important uh, role in Richard, Richard III's reign, but it wasn't because of his own action. It was because of his son and his daughter Anne was um, engaged to the uh, Scottish crown prince at the time. And it was, of course, dissolved when Henry VII came to the throne. John, Earl of Lincoln, the second John, uh, becomes quite important during the reign of good King Richard, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, he was even described as Richard's friend by the ambassador Nicholas von Poplau. Mm. Um, he, he was president of the Council of the North, and when Richard's only legitimate son, Edward of Middleham, died, he even became Richard's heir presumptive. Uh, this was, of course, not, not due to any of his own actions. It's often claimed that Richard probably chose him, but Richard couldn't choose any more than your current king can yet choose mm. Prince William as his heir. It's just the laws of inheritance and According to those laws, uh, Lincoln was Richard's heir. But Lincoln was quite a popular man, and he actually got very on very well in his position of President of Council of the North. He even got on very well with Henry Percy, uh, mm. Earl of Northumberland, who, who was not exactly the Yorkist's biggest fan. Um, it is notable, however, that Lincoln was only in his early 20s, and there are some ordinances Richard laid down for him uh, as President of Council of the North, which which suggests he had quite a streak of mischief. For example, it's pointed out that when he goes hunting, he has to pay for his own food and not dine out on government dime, and that uh -huh. he's not to have two breakfasts ordered. And you get something of the impression of Richard desperately attempting to close all, uh, close all loopholes as Lincoln's happily skipped through them all, like like some sort of university student, maybe. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I I just I adore this family. I just think they are they are fascinating and under underexplored. So, having been a favourite of Richard III, how does John of Lincoln find life under Henry Tudor? Um, that's maybe the most interesting part because Henry loved him. He trusted <laughs> him as he as he trusted no other, pretty much. It, it, it really startled me when I started researching it. You'd think Henry would have been wary of him, but after all, with Richard dead, before Henry changed the law in his parliament in November 1485, Lincoln was the jury king. But Henry seems to have immediately taken to him. He didn't even ask him to swear fealty until after that parliament, together with the Earl of Oxford and his own, own uncle, Jasper Tudor, who had been in exile with him. In the first years of uh, Henry's reign, Lincoln was very much to the fore. He received a position of honor at the christening of Henry's son, Prince Arthur, um, pretty much the only one who wasn't very closely related to him. He was even one of the few asked to uh, try and find rebels in 1486. He got to keep most of the honors given to him by Richard, except the ones um, well connected with being an heir. Uh, it's it's notable in itself, but it becomes even more notable, realizing that there's evidence Lincoln was involved in plotting against Henry from December 1485. Mm -hmm. and, and that also tells us a lot about Lincoln, and it's perhaps not the most scattering even, though it's extraordinarily impressive. He must have been a really one hell of an actor to keep Henry so happy with him, so trusting while even plotting against him. But it also tells us just how much Lincoln must have hated him. He was always in Henry's present, acting as if he 
as if he was his friend and all the while plotting his death. You can see why the Tudors were paranoid, can't you? Yeah, actually, <laughs> that's that's even recorded contemporarily that, that Henry, after after that after Stoke, he said he would never trust again. So you can see why. Gosh. So tell us about you know, the end of uh, of John Lincoln. How how does his how does his story end? Well, he um, eventually he openly declared against Henry the Seventh. That was in early 1487. And he went to, to Burgundy to his aunt, Margaret, um, Duchess of Burgundy, or the widow of Duchess of Burgundy, really. Um, and she and Francis Lovell, about whom my first book is about, uh, had been uh, planning a rebellion with the help of uh, Margaret's uh, son-in-law, um, Maximilian, who would go on to become Holy Roman Empire a couple decades later. And um, and uh, Irish support as well. They they had a pretender, um, a young boy who who we actually don't know who he claimed who he was. Uh, well, the traditional version is that he claimed to be Edward uh, Alavoric, but there is really no reason why Lincoln would have uh, rebelled for Edward Alavoric, either a real one or a fake one. Uh, so there's a theory, especially uh, proposed these days by Matt Lewis, uh, that he was actually claimed or actually was Edward V. Well, we we don't know, but um, well, they they started this rebellion and it eventually it culminated in a battle, the Battle of Stoke, and Lincoln died at that battle. Again, interesting. Uh, it's said uh, contemporarily that um, Henry wanted him to live. And uh, Virgil actually claimed, Polydoro Virgil, writing a bit later, that uh, that Henry's men were desperate for him to die already because they were afraid that he Henry would give him back all the favor. Wow. Wow. He must have been charming. Very. Because, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've spoken to, we've spoken to the wonderful, you know, friend of the show, Matt Lewis, chair of the Richard the Third Society, about this and about his book, The Survival of the Princes in the Tower. And his suggestion is that in 1487, the only person with a better Yorkist claim to the throne than John de la Pole, um, Earl of Lincoln, would be Edward V. So yeah. why is he going to go and fight and get himself killed for some Irish pretender? He must... It, they must have believed that that boy was still alive to fight for him. So it's really interesting. What do you think? I don't know. I just know <laughs> the the traditional version. It just can't be because, for one thing, it it requires that uh, the Earl of Lincoln uh, is bilocating because he he both leaves court uh, in early February mm. and uh, takes this this lowborn boy from Oxford with him. And at the same time, he's still there when that lowborn boy is uh, announced in Burgundy and can uh, judge that the real Earl of Lincoln is there. And this cannot be. It physically <laughs> cannot be. And I think, well, I think it's probably the version that answers the most question is that, yes, it was Edward V. I, I wouldn't want to be definite on this, but the other versions don't make as much sense. This one also leaves some questions open, but I guess at a distance of over 500 years, anything will. That's really exciting. But you, you're very good at you're very good at finding 
historical children yourself, Michelle, because you, since we spoke about Francis Lovell, you you found something else, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I found uh, well a reference to a daughter of Francis Lovell, and it's always assumed, and I always assumed as well that he did never had any children, but but he did. There's a daughter in the paste and letters, uh, very obscure, often in in abridged version, it's cut out, called Agnes. Um, and there's also a reference that said Agnes had a brother, but no name, sadly. So yeah, there, there, there would have been two children, two children who sadly died before 1485, mm-hmm. probably before 1484, but yeah, she was called Agnes. We don't know his name. And then afterwards, um, I know it's not covered in the book, but, uh, the rest of the Delapole family, his brother, uh, John's brothers, they uh, fall foul of possibly one of the worst kings of uh, Britain, of England, don't they? Yes. Actually, it's interesting because what's covered in the book is um, John Senior, John Duke of Suffolk, actually survived his oldest son. And he was also favoured by Henry for reasons nobody knows. And and he, he did his usual thing. He even, in, uh, in one, maybe two years later, he was invited to a, to a festivity by Henry VII, and he actually said... It's not lavish enough for me, and just didn't come, and he didn't get punished. (laughs) He died in his bed, but then his heir was John's younger brother Edmund, and well, he at first, uh, well, he got demoted to Earl of Suffolk, and a lot of his uh, belongings were confiscated. Then Edmund went and sued. He said, I, "I'm either staying an Earl, or I'm uh, I'm uh, losing all these possessions, but not both." And then he won in court and got his possessions back. That's yeah, the Delapoles—they were great. And um, but at some point, he got accused of having murdered somebody. It's all a bit sketchy. We don't really know what happened. And eventually he and his youngest brother, Richard, Richard, born in just after Richard III died. And then his mother, Elizabeth, and of course his uh, father, John, went and named him Richard, just after <laughs> Henry had come to the throne. That's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> um, anyway, the, the two of them rebelled against uh, Henry VII and they fled to exile. And... Um, there was another brother, William, and he got imprisoned. He wasn't even involved, but he got imprisoned. And he stayed in prison for, I think, 37 years. Longest longest prisoner in the history of the Tower, despite having done exactly nothing, just because of his association. Uh, the other two, um, Edmund, uh, was eventually returned to England, stayed in the Tower as well, and got executed by Henry VIII. Supposedly... Henry VII told him to have him executed uh, on his deathbed, but since he was only executed four years after Henry VII died, I don't think we can blame him for that. <laughs> uh, and and Richard, Richard actually never returned to England. He was called the last White Rose, and he was a he was claiming to be King of England for quite a while. Uh, he also called himself Duke of Suffolk, and all the rest of Europe did as well. Just like, well we are not accepting that thing that he was demoted. No, no. And, uh, well, he was quite impressive. One time, Henry VIII, who you understand why he hated him, because he said his throne belonged to him, yeah. uh, sent a spy. And then Richard turned the spy and sent him back to England to spy on Henry. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> oh, Again, they're charming, aren't they? This is, this, 
there must have been something about the De La Poles that was irresistible. Absolutely, yeah. We don't know what, but you get the impression that they are just very charming. A lot of uh, joy de vivre, I would say, yeah. with them, yeah. Uh, Richard eventually died at the Battle of Pavia in, I think, 1525. Wow. Well, Michelle, this has been really, really interesting. I, I do do enjoy sort of late, late middle-aged dynasticism. Um, <laughs> so cutthroat and so much backstabbing and uh, uh, people with amazing charisma. But um, could you remind everyone uh, what your um, what the book's title is and where they can get it, please? Yes, of course. The book's title is um, De La Pole, Father and Son, The Duke, the Earl and the Struggle for Power. And they, they can get it off the Amberley website. Well, pre-order it. It's out in two weeks. Um, uh, of Amazon, I guess, and any, any bookstore uh, in Britain anyway. It's only out here in Germany in three months. <laughs> well, we'll take full advantage of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, um, I'll speak to the powers to get it up on the uh, History Hack bookshop. That way... Uh... Not only do we get a small slice of the money, you get a bigger slice of the money, and uh, Jeff Bezos can't use it for rocket fuel. So <laughs> Thank you. Winner. <laughs> Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.